Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Schedule-wise, last night at men's group, we talked about with the coming holidays what the plan was going to be. We're going to meet tonight. For those of you who are here tonight, tonight we're meeting. And then next Wednesday, we will be here. But the Wednesday after that is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We traditionally always take that off. And in years past, we have sort of given you the month of December to not have Wednesday night services, and Tom and I go out and visit other churches and visit friends in the area. And, of course, one of those Wednesdays, we're going to have our holiday singing, and I think that's going to happen on the 15th, correct, Micah? So on the 15th, we'll be announcing that so that everybody's here to sing along with us on that night. But the other Wednesdays, we will pick up again after the first of the year, We will close Isaiah and then begin, I believe, a study in the book of Psalms. So that is the big plan. Tonight we are in Isaiah 61, so you can turn to Luke 4. So quick question. I I hope that by now you have seen in this study of Isaiah that you have seen how often the New Testament authors have quoted from Isaiah how often they have alluded to Isaiah, how often they have developed their theology based on things that Isaiah has said. And they are not just quoting one section of Isaiah, they quote from various different areas in the book of Isaiah, giving the book of Isaiah overall a tremendous amount of validity because of how frequently they go back and quote it as the proof for their own theology. Tonight, what we're going to see is Jesus quoting directly from Isaiah 61, and not just a verse. He's going to quote the whole opening passage, and then he's going to do something absolutely fascinating. But my question for the evening is, if Jesus quotes the first several verses of Isaiah 61, Does that also mean that he is validating what comes immediately after what he quotes and what's immediately before what he quotes? Because what's immediately before and after what Jesus quotes is promises of the restoration of Israel and their glorious future. So once again, I would have to say that anyone who's willing to admit that Jesus validates the first part of Isaiah 61 in what we're about to read and then turns around and says, but the church is Israel and God's done with Israel and there's no future for Israel. And not only is that completely unbiblical, but you have to explain how it is that you're giving Christ authority to the first part of Isaiah 61 And then saying, but that stops right at this verse. After that, he doesn't mean any of that. 
He's not validating any of that. And what came immediately before it? He doesn't care about that. He just cares about these verses. That's an absurd way to think. Instead, we have to say, considering how much of Isaiah has been validated by the New Testament authors, and now that you're going to get Jesus himself validating the very chapter we're looking at, when we get to chapter 61, we're going to have to say, and all of that completely is true. Because Jesus himself, as we're going to see in a moment, went to that particular section of Isaiah. He was just handed the scroll of Isaiah, which had no numbers in it, had no verses in it, had no chapters in it. And then he looked for this part of Isaiah. And then he reads it out loud and says, today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. That thing that was written 700 years ago comes to its fulfillment right here, right now, today, in your hearing. That's what Jesus said, standing in the synagogue. So, let's read it from chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 14 of the book of Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is right after Luke records Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And having succeeded in all of that, he then returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit of God within him. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues. And he was praised by everyone. One of the most fascinating aspects of Jesus' teaching is reading the reactions of people who hear him, including the fact that the Pharisees one time heard him and said, where does he get all this knowledge? He doesn't speak like one of us. He speaks with authority. It's coming right from him. All the Pharisees, all of the priests, all the leaders in Jerusalem would have to say, this is what the text says. So the authority was in the text, not within them. But one thing they noticed about Jesus all the time was that his authority emanated from him. And they were fascinated by it because they said, he has no learning. He didn't go to our schools. He didn't raise up under the rabbinical traditions. And yet he speaks as one that has this astounding authority. So he began teaching in their synagogues. And he was praised by everybody who heard him. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. This was typical of most synagogues. You know the, the word from the Hebrew language just means a gathering. And so the same way that a church is an assembly, is a gathering, that's what a synagogue was. The Jews would get together in their synagogues, and they would do very much like we do on Sunday mornings. We have a rotation of men who stand up and read scripture and prayer every Sunday. Well, that's what they would do in the synagogues. They would have a circulation of people who would stand up and just read the text. And so they handed the scroll to Jesus. He's in Nazareth. That's his hometown. They know him there. They know his family. They know his mom and dad. He came to Nazareth where he was brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the scroll, 
and he found where it was written, and then the quote. So Jesus is just simply handed the scroll of Isaiah, kind of like, here, read something out of this. And he took the time to go through the scroll to find exactly what he was looking for, and he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, that had to shake the room. That had to make everybody sit up and pay attention because he's reading it in the first person. And rather than saying, this is a prophecy of Isaiah about perhaps Isaiah, this is actually about me. And the same way that Isaiah said 700 years ago that the Spirit of God was going to be upon the Messiah, I'm standing right in front of you now as your Messiah declaring that this scripture is about me. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. King James says the acceptable year of the Lord. How often have you heard me say, God is a God of set times. God works on a calendar. God knows at exactly what moment he's going to do things. And so Jesus says, I'm here to proclaim to you the acceptable year of the Lord when your Messiah will actually be in your midst, validating and completing these prophecies of the Old Testament like Isaiah, who declared that I was going to stand here and say this very thing. And here I am saying it to you. And just so that they didn't miss it, verse 20 says, he closed the book. He gave it back to the minister, the attendant who was holding the books. And he sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Boy, I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah. They're all looking at him like, who gets to say that? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, when I stood up right now and read that and said, it's about me, that is the fulfillment of why Isaiah wrote it 700 years ago. So that I could stand right here, right now, and say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm here to proclaim release to the captives. I'm here to give recovery of sight to the blind. I'm here to free those who are downtrodden. I'm here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And you watched me do it. I fulfilled scripture right here in front of you. It's no wonder they were all staring at him. But this is Jesus. This is the very son of God. So everything that he just said here is demonstrably true. Isaiah did, in fact, write this that we're about to read about Christ. And Christ did stand up, read it, and say, this is about me, and it is fulfilled right now, right here, in the fact that you heard me read it. And all were speaking well of him, and they were wondering at his gracious words, which were falling from his lips. And some were saying, wait a minute, we know this guy. He's from our neighborhood. How does he get away with saying this? 
Some said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you're going to quote this proverb to me. You're going to say, physician, heal yourself. In other words, you've heard of me that I've gone about doing these great miracles. You've heard of me that I have these abilities to heal people. And now you think I'm so nuts for having said that this applies to me. You're going to say, you need to get well, and you're the healer. You better heal yourself. You're going to say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when the great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them. But instead, he was sent to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, and all of those in the synagogue were now filled with rage." as they heard these things. And they rose up, and they cast him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city has been built in order to throw him off a cliff. And he turned around and walked right through the middle of them. Passing through their midst, he went his way. So they were all in favor of him. At the beginning of verse 14, they heard him so gladly and they marveled at him. And all he does is declare that he is God, which is the very thing that they nailed him to a cross for. They said that was blasphemy because he made himself equal with God. He went to the scripture. He read Isaiah and he said, this applies to me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am the Messiah. And today, this scripture that's been laying around for 700 years. Today, right now, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, the very fact that I read it out loud to you. And they turn on him, and they accuse him of being crazy. And then he reminds them of the truth of the scripture. He reminds them that in Israel, there was so little faith that whether it was the time of the drought, when God was taking care of his own prophet, or whether it was the time of Elisha the prophet, that there were no Jews who got the benefit of having a prophet in their midst. Instead, both of them were helped by Gentiles. And oh, that did it for them. Now they just want to throw him off a cliff. And can you imagine that scene? A mob of people, just like at his crucifixion, the mob who went from Hosanna and throwing palm branches in the streets and hailing him as the son of David. And a couple days later, they're saying, crucify him and his blood be on our hands and on the head of our children. I mean, it turns that quickly. As soon as there's the declaration of who he actually is, they turn on him. And that's the same way today. People like the idea of just a meek and mild, kind and gentle Jesus who just kind of said some good things, was a pretty good philosopher, you know, it was kind of a social justice guy. Uh, they like that notion. 
But as soon as you say, no, he's the sovereign, he's the very son of God, he's the one who's in control of your life and you're going to have to stand before him because he's the judge of the universe, that's when they start breaking out the weapons. That's when they say, I don't want to hear from you anymore. I liked it better when we had the nice little philosophical Jesus. And it was lifetime believers in the commandment of do not murder who went, let's kill him. Yeah, absolutely. It just doesn't fit. And then that mob, I mean, the the miracle that Luke just kind of writes in passing, a mob of people to throw him off a cliff. And Luke writes casually, then he turned around and walked right through the middle of them. And apparently nobody could touch him because it wasn't his time yet. So, all right, so with all that background, now let's go to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 starts exactly where Jesus began quoting. Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim The favorable year of the Lord. Now, in Luke's account, that's where Jesus stopped reading. Very specifically. In the middle of a sentence, Jesus stopped reading, handed the scroll back, and said, Today, this is all fulfilled in your hearing. Why did he stop exactly there? Because what comes next is not fulfilled in your hearing. What comes next was not fulfilled that day. So Jesus, with great specificity, Read right up to the point where he could say, all of this is fulfilled right today in your hearing. But the very next thing that Isaiah wrote, because again, Isaiah sees it as all one big picture. He sees it as when Messiah comes, he's going to accomplish all of this. Jesus says, I've accomplished all of this, but not this yet. So Jesus actually places a gap of time between I'm here now, I'm going to Bind up the brokenhearted. I'm going to preach the good news. I'm going to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And I'm going to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the second part of that sentence says, and that and connects it to everything that went before it. And the day of vengeance of our God. Day of vengeance stuff is the stuff we're going to read about in Revelation. Day of vengeance stuff is day of the Lord stuff, tribulation stuff. And that didn't occur back when Jesus was standing in the synagogue in Nazareth. So he couldn't say that and still say, today these things are fulfilled in your hearing, because that was not fulfilled in that day. And Jesus was so astoundingly familiar with his own word, he knew exactly where to make the break in the middle of the sentence, to be able to say, Today, this. The rest of it, not yet. But the rest of it is just as valid as the stuff that he said today, this. Isaiah sees it all, and Jesus validates the rest of it that's coming. And the rest of it is this. There is a day of vengeance of our God. Who is our in that sentence? Israel. Israel. The God of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, the Savior of Israel. It's the day of his vengeance to comfort 
all who mourn. All those who are mourning, all those who are oppressed, all of those who are under sadness and slavery, all of those who are held down by the several kingdoms that have oppressed Jerusalem. God is going to mete out his vengeance on behalf of his people against those nations in order to comfort those who are mourning because of their oppression. So the day of vengeance of our God is a terrible time for the nations that have come against Israel, but it's going to be a time of great joy, great deliverance. And what have we been reading in the book of Isaiah so far? Well, back in verse 60, verse 21, then all your people will be righteous. They're going to possess the land forever, the branch of my planning, the work of my hands, so that I may be glorified. And the smallest one's going to become a clan, and the largest one will become a mighty nation, and I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. It's all one prophecy. It's all a continuation of the same thought. So the fact that Jesus said this one little portion, these first couple of verses of what we refer to as Isaiah 61, because he validated that, he also validated then all your people are going to be righteous and possess the land forever. And he also validated there's a time of vengeance coming of our God to comfort all those who mourn and to grant those who are mourning in Zion to give them garlands, festive dress, festive flowers, garlands instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of their weeping and their mourning, and a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting away. So they will be called Oaks of righteousness. What did I just read from chapter 60? All your people will be righteous. Now we know how they're going to get that righteousness. And they're going to be called oaks of righteousness. They're going to be called the planting of the Lord so that he may be glorified. What did we just read in chapter 60? God is going to bring them to possess the land. They are the branch of his planting so that he may be glorified. So before 61, 1 and 2, and after Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, we read the exact same language of God's guarantee that he's going to replant Israel in their land, and he's going to accomplish it for his own glory. That is equally true as Jesus had the Spirit of the Lord upon him because God anointed him so that he would come and preach the good news to the afflicted. So all of this is true, or none of it is true, and Jesus validated that all of it is true. Got it? Got it. So you cannot extricate that moment of Jesus standing in the synagogue and saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You can't extricate that from all your people. Israel are going to be called righteous, and they're going to possess the land forever. And you can't extricate it from God is going to give them the oil of gladness instead of sadness and the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And they're going to be called oaks of righteousness, trees that are planted in righteousness, the planting of the Lord so that he may be glorified. That all stands as a unit 
and is all true. And then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. Here's God beginning to declare that the great kingdom that David ruled over, and especially that Solomon ruled over, those are the things that lay in tatters. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. After being destroyed by all their enemies through the years, and then finally Babylon has destroyed it, and yet God keeps saying that there's going to be a day when they're going to rebuild these ancient ruins And they're going to raise up the formerly devastated things, the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities and the desolations that lay there for many generations. In other words, glorious future for Jerusalem, glorious future for Israel, and it's going to be rebuilt to the kind of glory that it once had. And strangers, says verse 5, strangers will stand and will pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. You're going to have a life of such ease that the Gentiles who have attacked you all these years, the Gentiles who destroyed your cities, those very Gentiles are going to take care of your sheep. They're going to be your farmers providing you food, and they're going to be your vine dressers providing you with wine. They are going to serve you, and you're going to have abundance. You're going to have plenty. Verse 6, but you, you will be called the priests of the Lord. Just this last Sunday, providentially, we saw the promise in the book of Revelation that God is going to make them a kingdom and priests. You will all be called the priests of the Lord, every single one of you, not just the Levites. And you will be spoken of as ministers who are waiting on our God. And you're going to eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches, you're going to boast. If that sounds familiar, you just saw it last week in chapter 60. The sons of those who afflicted you are going to be bowing down to you, and all those who despised you will bow down themselves to the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord and the Zion of the holy God of Israel. And whereas you have been forsaken and hated... With no one passing through you, I'm going to make you an everlasting pride and a joy from generation to generation. And you will suck the milk of the nations and you will suck the breasts of kings. And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your savior. I am the redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. That goes right together with strangers are going to stand and pasture your flocks and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. And you're going to be called priests to the Lord. And you're going to be spoken of as the ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations. And in their riches, you shall boast. Okay, so that's before and after the passage that Jesus validates. Am I kind of beating this to death? It's all true or none of it's true. Jesus says it's true. You're going to be called priests to the Lord, and you will be spoken of as ministers of our God, and you will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. And instead of your shame, you're going to have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they're going to shout for joy over their portion. And therefore, you will possess a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be yours, because I, the Lord, love justice. That's why there's a day of vengeance of our God. 
That's why the day of vengeance is going to cause comfort to his people who have been mourning and been so sad. Because even though it looks in human history as if all these Gentile nations have held sway against Israel, have conquered Israel, have torn down their cities, have destroyed the worship of God in Jerusalem, according to God, that's not just. According to God, that's not the way things are going to be because I, the Lord, love justice. And I hate robbery in the burnt offerings. And I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with them. And then their offspring will be known among the nations. The offspring, the children of Israel, the continuation of the nation of Israel is going to be known among the Gentile nations. And their descendants, the children of Israel, are going to be in the midst of the peoples. And all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. And I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. This is now apparently Israel responding to the fact that God has made them these magnificent promises. In that day when they are restored, in that day when they are returned to the land, in that day when they are regathered, God is going to change their heart, take out their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh, put his spirit within them. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. They're going to weep as a mother weeps over her only child. They're going to recognize their Messiah. They're going to be planted finally in their land. They're going to have this glorious kingdom And they're going to say, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. That should also sound familiar to you because we talked a little bit about it back when we were doing topical messages and we talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we go through the book of Revelation, we'll get to Revelation 19 someday in the future, and we'll look at it again. But one of the chief characteristics of the marriage supper of the Lamb is that those who are invited to the marriage supper are given white robes, clean and white, and then John is told these robes are the righteousness of saints. And so righteousness, symbolized by this covering, these robes, these white robes, given by God to his saints, that's where we get our righteousness. It is gifted to us by God. Here the promise is made to Israel while they are greatly rejoicing and exulting in their God. He's going to give them, he's going to clothe them with the garments of salvation. Gosh, that sounds a lot like Pauline language. All Israel will be saved. Where did Paul get that idea? He got it from Isaiah and passages like this. That God is the redeemer of Israel. That God is the savior of Israel. That God is the God of Israel. And he doesn't give up on them. He makes covenants with them. He loves them with an everlasting love. That's all their language. Those are all their promises. And where are they going to get their righteousness? It's so easy to point at Israel and say... They denied their Messiah. They broke the law of God. They rebelled. They had hard hearts. They chased after other gods. 
And people usually cite all of that before saying, and that's why God gave up on them. But just like you're going to get your righteousness imputed to you, a righteousness that is foreign to you, a righteousness that Christ alone has, Israel is also going to have an imputed righteousness described here as that he's going to wrap me with a robe of righteousness, the same way that a bridegroom decks himself out with garlands and a bride adorns herself with her jewels the same way I'm going to wear, says Israel, these robes of righteousness that are given to me by God. Where are they going to get them? From God. They're not going to get it by their own works. They're not going to get it by their own actions. They're not going to get it by their own determination. And yes, they're nothing but guilty. And so are you. I didn't mean to look right at you, Jeff, when I said that. But, but so are you. And if God does not impute righteousness to you, you get none. And if God doesn't impute righteousness to Israel, they don't get any. And the promise is he's going to cover them with garments of salvation and wrap them with a robe of righteousness. The same way that the earth brings forth its green sprouts, the same way that a garden causes things that are planted in it to spring up, the same way the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up in Israel before all the nations before all the Gentiles. Now, I have said repeatedly, as Israel has said, as Isaiah has said, that God is going to pour out blessings on Israel and the Gentile nations are going to be blessed because of Israel, because they have Israel, God's people, in their midst. Blessings are going to flow from Jerusalem, from Israel, out to the Gentile nations. Here again is that same description that God is going to cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the Gentiles in front of the nations. So the very nations who have oppressed Israel, the same nations that have gone to war with Israel, the same nations that caused Israel to sin and chase after their foreign gods, the same nations that have destroyed the city of Jerusalem, those same nations are going to rejoice in Israel as they see, as they recognize the blessings that are coming to them because Israel exists in their midst, because it turns out that Israel's God is the only God, and he's the one that is going to cause the righteousness and the praise of Israel to grow up in front of all the Gentile nations. And then Isaiah keeps talking and says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. So there's no question who this is all about. It's about Zion. It's about Jerusalem. It's about Israel. The language is inarguable. The language has been validated by Jesus himself. So I find it virtually impossible to conceive of people who say, I'm a Christian. Uh, my theology is based on Christ, what Christ believes, what Christ taught. Christ just taught that everything we just read is valid. And so if you're going to get in line with what the Bible says, if you're going to get in line with what Jesus says, you have to also say, well, then this is all valid. Every single bit of it, including the almost incomprehensible thought 
that God is going to raise this nation up like a nation born in a day. That he's going to change them so instantaneously, so completely, and he's going to do it all for his own praise. For Zion's sake, I'm not going to keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation goes forth like a burning torch. And the nations, the Gentiles, will see your righteousness and all the kings will see your glory and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. Later in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that we are given new names and white stones with new names written on them. We're going to be renamed by God according to God's own righteous judgment. Same thing for Israel. So again, all of these glorious promises that we're looking forward to, the grace of God and the righteousness of God, the things that we're looking forward to in God changing us and redeeming us and giving us salvation, even to the point of giving us a new name and even giving us promises of a new Jerusalem, those promises all belong to Israel. And then we are grafted in to those promises by the astounding grace of God. But they're not ours by nature. They're ours because God was gracious to us and adopted us into the family, but not a one of those promises doesn't belong to Israel first. And you cannot take them away from Israel and still trust that God's going to be faithful to you. You got it? Absolutely. So next week we will look at Isaiah 62. That will leave us with four chapters that we will pick up after the first of the year. And by the way, when we get there, guess what it's going to be about? God's faithfulness to Israel. That's the whole end of the book. So I think, and I hope you agree, that you don't get better validation of any particular text of the Bible than to have the Son of God, the Word, the living incarnate Word walking on planet Earth, when he validates some Old Testament scripture, it is inarguably the word of God that has to come true. Because yep. it did come true in his day. He stood right there and said, this is fulfilled right here and right now. But the day of vengeance of our God is also coming. And the day of the restoration of Israel is also coming. And the planting of Israel in their own land again is coming. And the glorious future for Israel is coming. And that's why Jesus stopped right where he stopped. But by stopping there and saying, this is all true right here, right now, and being fulfilled in your hearing, he was also saying, and all the rest of this is going to happen. Same way this is happening right here, right now. By the way, a God who can do all that is a God who can take care of you. That's a God who can handle your bills. That's a God who can handle your sicknesses. That's a God who can handle whatever... Brandon has for us coming down the line. Whatever happens, whatever's coming, God's got it. Because he's the God who is in control of human history. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. 
we encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.